Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Stuart, Sean, great to be in conversation with you today. What is it? The 17th of March, 2023. Yeah, St. Patrick's Day. And happy St. Patrick's Day, guys. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, let's uh, dive into two issues on the show this week. We've got to talk about uh, uh, the appointment of a uh, special rapporteur, an imminent Canadian, what it all means, maybe more importantly, what it says about Ottawa and uh, the willingness to calm, I think, legitimate public concerns about the effects of Chinese uh, election interference on our democracy. Uh, we'll dig into that in the first half of the show. In the back half, let's talk media. There's a few big developments. Sean was writing about them this week. The government is moving forward with its um, its bill that will have big impacts on YouTube and other kind of casual content creators. And we've also got Meta likely joining Google to pull out of sharing news on their platforms. What does it mean for the hub? <laughs> Let's talk about that. But first, uh, I'm going to just uh, have our producer, Amal Adar Guzman, uh, roll some tape on, um, yeah, just the amazing sagacity that I bring to this program each and every week. I am a prediction machine. Let's hear that tape right now. The, the point is they didn't even have a name to announce. And it, it, and it just kind of struck me as like they are just operating in a complete, what I would call, influence vacuum. That all they have is what they have, which is uh, an embattled and uh, hunkered down PMO. They can't even get, you know, who are the two conspicuous suspects in the imminent Canadian says, Well, it's usually it's Beverly McLaughlin. Or, you know, our former, uh, our former GG, David Johnson, you know, they can't even get them on the speed dial to put up their hand and say, okay, I'm, I'm the rapporteur. I'm the imminent Canadian. Awesome. Well, there you have it, guys. I mean, come on, actually, how hard was it to predict? I, I said it had to be either Beverly McLaughlin or David Johnson. And sure enough, Stuart, we have David Johnson, the former governor general, appointed as special rapporteur. How's this going down in Ottawa? How's it going down with the press corps? I sense an amazing kind of binary Manichaean division that, you know, Johnson is just driving right through the center of the press corps, dividing out on opposite extremes for and against uh, his appointment as special rapporteur. Yeah, I, I think sort of the equilibrium perspective from the press, from the sort of average reporter out there or columnist is kind of just splitting the middle, which is that. David Johnson is a good guy, but this is putting him in a very bad position and it's a bad decision by Trudeau. And I think, you know, I think one of the places that we sometimes can find some room um, in the discourse is to sort of earnestly look at the, the policies and stay away from the cynical politics and actually talk about what's happening. But in this specific example, I think it is worth sort of dissecting this, which is that, of course, Nobody in the PMO is saying 
how can we really get to the bottom of this Chinese interference problem? How can we solve this issue and make sure the Chinese aren't interfering? What they're saying is, how do we make this not blow up in our faces and become a political problem for us? And I think that's primarily what this appointment is, is you take someone, I think the word that everybody was using was unimpeachable. David Johnston, you just can't impeach this guy. And you get someone like that who is respectable and will do a pretty good investigation it's not really his wheelhouse, this kind of stuff. So he might not find yeah, well, anything. Let, and that's ooh. about it. Well, let me jump in here with uh, a little bit of impeachment vibe. Um, maybe Sean will join and pile on. I don't know. We'll see. But I've got to say, Stuart, you put this all together. And again, not to not to be too negative or critical or discount his public service over the years in a variety of different ways and capacities. But Let's connect some dots here. It's all been reported extensively in the media this week. This, this appointment is hardly at arm's length from the prime minister. It seems that David Johnson shared a cottage in the Laurentians with Pierre Elliott Trudeau side by side. I'm sure the young Trudeau maybe traipsed across the lawns from one Laurentian cottage to another, enjoying the, the beautiful uh, surroundings of... Uh, of Quebec in its uh, natural environment amongst, um, again, uh, an elite, an elite of his dad, David Johnson, a family friend. Uh, there's no other way to characterize it. We then flash forward to more contemporary history. David Johnson is the chair of the Federal Election Debates Committee. Uh, he was appointed by the prime minister uh, to this role and has run, look, let's just be honest, uh, now two sets of utterly disastrous federal leadership debates, debates that conform to a policy format that the prime minister set when he established these debates, arguably to benefit an incumbent PM in an election. The, the nature of these debates really provide very little sustained scrutiny. So here you have a guy who's now been appointed, quote, special rapporteur. You can check out the article we published on this. It's interesting, you know, Invented whole cloth, never had one of these before in Canada. It's a UN concept. And then this guy is now going to investigate basically a longstanding family friend. And what, later he's going to, in the next election coming up, maybe triggered by Chinese election interference, he's going to chair the federal elections debate committee and determine rules that will affect the prime minister in one of the highest stakes moments we know of a campaign. And then the cherry, the icing on the cake, is that he's a member of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation right now. Not in the past, not decades ago. Right now, he's a member, a voting member of the corporation, selects the directors of the very foundation that CSIS has now uh, alleged received money uh, from a Chinese businessman through an influence campaign where these funds directly came from Beijing. So I don't know, Sean, I put this all together and I just, I think only in Ottawa, only in Ottawa and in Canada, a kind of clown G7 country, do we end up with this individual, this conflicted as the person, the supposed Oracle of Delphi that is going to lead us out of this morass of Chinese election interference. Oh, well, good, good for you. That's a, a pretty comprehensive indictment, Rudyard. Uh, 
you know, I, I wonder if the Trudeau Foundation network has a secret handshake or something like that. Uh, it's pretty rich that um, not only is David Johnston, who's now investigating uh, the subject of Chinese election interference, uh, a member, but you recall that Morris Rosenberg, the president CEO, was tasked by this government to review the 2021 federal election campaign. And so, you know, one can't help but think that if you're a member of the Trudeau Foundation, you ought to be ready to be tapped to investigate the investigation by David Johnston when this is all over. Um, there's much that could be said uh, in response to what the two of you have, have already outlined. Maybe I'll just put this on the table, guys. Uh, you know, I can't help but think that if the Trudeau government had to pick its poison, a fight over whether David Johnson is in, David Johnston's impeachable or not is far preferable than a fight about whether the Trudeau government has intentionally um, um, failed to divulge intelligence showing uh, uh, interference in our elections in favor of the Liberal Party in the past two cycles. I'm not sure that that's a fight um, that the government uh, doesn't want. Um, and so it seems to me there is some need for uh, the the opposition parties to to uh, avoid giving them that fight, uh, uh, you can you can argue as Rudyard has just comprehensively outlined that David Johnston is the wrong choice, and and hopefully encourage Mr. Johnston to revisit his appointment. But in the past couple of days, we've seen uh, some conservative voices overreach a bit. Um, so, Sean, basically, you're saying that I'm a useful idiot. <laughs> I love it. Actually, it's true. I'm completely uh, I'm playing into the PMO line here. It's brilliant. It's like I hadn't even thought of that. I'm a useful idiot. I'm allowing the dodge and duck. Um, wow. Humbling, 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 Sean. That's not that wasn't my that wasn't my point so much as to say, you know, the, the finance critic, for instance, uh, uh, called David Johnston a random liberal. Uh, yesterday. And it seems to me there is a way to separate out Johnston's uh, record of public service that that Stuart uh, described earlier, um, but then zero in on your point, uh, Rudyard, which is this exercise can't just be um, independent. It has to be perceived as independent. And there is more than enough there in David Johnston's background and his relationship to the prime minister um, uh, to 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 come to the view that that's not possible and, and that's why we need to do something differently here but Stuart, my let's just talk about ottawa culture here because whatever happened to people recusing themselves why didn't morris rosenberg just say you know what i'm not actually really the right person to write this election interference report because i was head of the trudeau foundation when the chinese were trying to run an influence campaign on the prime minister let's face it they were targeting one person with that donation to the to the Trudeau uh, Foundation, then David Johnson comes along and I guess just says, I don't know, maybe as a motto inscribed, uh, you know, somewhere behind a door uh, in his bathroom, the world needs more David Johnson because here he goes again. You know, it's like when is enough enough in people's careers, and when when do people just say to themselves, I may be able to do this, I might even think that I'm the right person to do it. But based on a lifetime of decisions that I've made, I'm not the right person in this moment to do this thing. And that is not a stretch to argue in the context of David Johnson, his his historic relationship with the prime minister. God, I 
total fact trivia, but he he moderated David Johnson the first televised election debate with Pierre Elliott Trudeau in the debate. I mean, this guy has been around for five decades. And I just don't get it, Stuart, why people just don't recuse themselves. My cynical answer is that the media is so uh, defenestrated in this country, is so um, inside the Ottawa bubble that this is just all okay. You know, it's just all okay. People move on. Nothing to see here. Uh, Mr. Johnson's got the file. He's an imminent Canadian. We couldn't get Beverly McLaughlin because she is on the high court of Hong Kong helping, you know, a pretty awful regime subjugate the freedom and liberty of the people of Hong Kong. So it wouldn't be ideal to have her investigate election interference, Chinese election interference in Canada. I get that. That was a good call by the, uh, the Ottawa Mandarins. But was this a good call, Stuart? Yeah, I guess he only had two options, though. So if McLaughlin's out, then <laughs> by default, it was Johnson. And I would also say, too, that, I mean, Johnson, he's an old guy. You know, he has a pretty good pension and an office budget from being GG, and I'm sure he's doing fine anyways. Um, so this is not about money. It's not about career. I wouldn't be surprised even if it's about partisan politics at this point in his career. I think it's probably just about he does feel like the world needs him to do this. Um, and I, my sense from the media, and I think your, I think your diagnosis is correct about the media, that there is sometimes complacency, not so much based on the fact that, you know, people don't want to do their job, but just that it's really hard to do your job when there's so few reporters left these days. But I think that, you know, from talking to reporters and knowing how the tenor of a few morning meetings these days about this story, that there is some blood in the water. And I don't think this is going to go away the way that it has gone away before. Um, and I would also say that when you activate the idealism of the media, which is still there, I, I think most of these reporters um, still, when you talk about democratic institutions, it gets them going. That's the kind of thing that they got into reporting to report on. Um, so I, you know, if I were taking a bet, I would say that just about every reporter right now is not content to let Sam Cooper and Bob Fife own this story. I've been in Ottawa when they're doing this and it's almost impossible, you know, like me sitting on the hill trying to compete with Bob Fife is a ridiculous notion, but every reporter in on the hill is trying right now. And I think the way this has gone shows them that the, gov the government, the Liberal government, especially Justin Trudeau, are very jumpy about this. So um, if there's anything that's going to fuel reporters, I think it's that. Can I make two observations? One in direct response to the conversation thus far and then one that may take us a, a bit of field and the first is what's striking about the johnson appointment and just generally the culture in ottawa that rudyard describes is the cognitive dissonance between the reality and the rhetoric around inclusion and diversity uh you know it's just striking isn't it that when push comes to shove we defer to the old boys network um, uh, by a government that has diversity, equity, inclusion is kind of fundamental to its own self image. Um, and, you know, I wrote an article uh, this year um, that argued that at Pierre Polyev's best, his message is one of real inclusion, of uh, breaking through the kind of old boys network through a meritocracy um you know his finance critic is someone who 
uh, it was involved in in criminal gangs as a young person. Pierre Polyev himself, of course, uh, was the uh, a, adopted child of, of a teenage mother. And it it seems to me that that message uh, could resonate a lot. Um, that we need to have a Canada that actually reflects its genuine diversity, not one that pays lip service to inclusion and diversity, but then ultimately defaults to um, the status quo. The second thing I just wanted to put on the table, because part of this podcast, you know, what we try to do, guys, is to put ideas or or analysis out there that our listeners may not find in mainstream places. And I've been thinking a lot in recent days about not just the Johnson appointment, but the broader issue of Chinese election interference and um, and Canada's relationship with China. Just bear with me. This might be a little longer than usual, but I think it represents a real opportunity for Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada. Um, and for the following reason, listeners will know that in the 2019 election, the People's Party tried to run a pretty conventional anti-immigration campaign, and it didn't work, right? They ended up with less than 2% of the vote. In 2021, they found magic um, because they were the only party prepared to challenge um, Canada's COVID-19 policy and, and the set of restrictions involved. I think um, moving forward, the People's Party is in search of what that next issue is. How can it differentiate from the mainstream parties? And I, I think Canada's relationship with China is one place where they're able to go further than any of the other mainstream parties who, you know, on one hand, have to keep an, an eye towards our commercial relationship with China. On the other hand, are kind of sensitive, as we've talked about in recent weeks, about the perception of, of Chinese Canadians uh, and Canadian policy vis-a-vis -vis China. But I think there is a, a, a kind of silent majority in Canada that would be responsive to a much a kind of firmer and hawkish position. Everything from, you know, challenging our 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 current policy with respect to student visas for Chinese students, um, investment from China. You know, if I'm Maxime Bernier, I, I would go as far as the other parties are going on China and then dial it up another several notches. And it seems to me that might be a way for the, the People's Party to continue to, to be a thorn in the side of Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party of Canada whenever we have another federal election. Well, great insights. And I guess my final comment on this segment is just that's precisely why we need something other than the epitome of a sclerotic Ottawa report on election interference. That's why, um, as our writers in the Hub have suggested, what if we had invited a judge from another uh, Westminster democracy, the UK, Australia, someone with intelligence experience to come in and do this report? could have lent real credibility. What if we had even gone to Dick Fadden or some former senior intelligence official in Canada to do this report? I think it would have lent some credibility. No, instead, what we've done is the typical Ottawa playbook of, quote, safe hands, of finding somebody who's going to write, I think, the report that official Ottawa will want written. And that report, right from the beginning, because unfortunately, David Johnson does have a 50-year history, and it has many intersections with the Trudeaus, uh, their foundation, this prime minister, his father. That's muddying the water already. Add that on to what we just know is going to come from this, this exercise in terms of some mealy mouth. On one hand, this. On the other hand, this. The cup half empty, the cup half full. It's going to do nothing, I think, substantively 
to restore public confidence, and it will give the Maxime Berniers of the world a window big enough to drive a bus through to agitate all kinds of policy outcomes which are not good. (laughs) We do not need to be beating up on Chinese Canadians. That's the last thing we need to be doing right now. We do not need to be attacking the institutions of state and creating doubt about their commitment to the national interest. But this is where we're going to go. We've got our imminent Canadian. Let's see what happens. Back after this break to talk about media, multiple fronts, Meta saying they're going to pull out of uh, ad news sharing. Google headed in the same direction. We got the YouTube bill uh, bustling through Parliament, soon likely to become law. What does it all mean for little old organizations like The Hub? We'll dig into it on the other side. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Friday Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Sean, let me start with you in this segment. You had an article in The Hub this week talking about uh, the legislation that is now um, in its final stages uh, to become law of the land. This would see basically the extension of CanCon, Canadian Content Rules, the CRTC, into broad swaths of the internet and content created by, you know, the likes of the Hub and others um, using platforms like YouTube and all the uh, the normal ways that we try to connect and share our ideas and message with our subscribers and members. Um, what's the key insight that you think our listeners should take away from as we contemplate uh, this new legislation becoming law? Yeah. yeah, thanks for drawing attention to it, Rudy. I mean, I think the first thing for listeners to know is that this is happening, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot of news uh, coming out of Ottawa these days. I think in a way, Bill C-11 and its implications for Canadian consumers to say nothing of Canadian content producers has probably been um, uh, underrepresented in a lot of the policy discourse coming out of Ottawa in the past several months. Um, You know, there are various reasons for that, including, as we might discuss, um, that the legacy media, I think, has an interest in some of these pieces of legislation moving forward. But I, 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 I can't stress enough Um, that if C-11 passes, it's going to have implications for the types of content that people can access on streaming services like YouTube and Netflix. It will no longer be the case um, that that content will be driven by the preferences of individual users. Um, Public policy will now have its finger on the scale in terms of what shows up in your feed or what you're able to access. And um, it just seems to me, guys, at its core, for a government that uh, has a self-image as being uh, 
kind of young and hip and uh, representing a kind of new generation of, of political leadership in Canada, C-11 is the most anachronistic, nostalgic piece of public policy in decades. It basically is trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube when it comes to um, the kind of explosion of content that has become available and the democratized way in which content is now produced vis-a-vis -vis the internet. And it's a bad piece of legislation. I think it's going to have really negative impacts on Canadian content producers who uh, kind of related to our previous conversation may not have been part of the it crowd when it came to the distribution of government grants for culture and so on, but were able to have a safety hatch out of that process by being able to go directly to consumers vis-a-vis -vis YouTube in particular and other streaming services. Um, the, the net result is there's going to be less choice, more conformity when it comes to the content that Canadians can receive. And it's going to uh, again, um, undermine um, the the kind of meritocratic um, process that I think all of us see is is at the heart of the Canadian promise. So, Stuart, what's driving this? I mean, one thing that Sean hypothesized in his article, and you get it right now on the Hub, is a pretty clear kind of political agenda here. Pablo Rodriguez is a MP from Quebec. In Quebec, there are understandably a different set of more intense anxieties about arts and culture and the extent to which it is being infiltrated by, yes, primarily English language sources from the rest of Canada, from the United States and around the world. The internet has become a conduit in Quebec to bring a lot of um, Anglophone culture in and around the traditional modalities of regulation through radio, television, and film. So is that really, Stuart, what you think is driving this? And again, if that's what's driving it, and I, I get it for a government, that politically could be important. It could be a public policy issue they want to solve. I don't know. Why not just go solve it? Why not just, I don't know, go give X number of billions to you know, Quebec uh, cultural creators and just and call it a day? I mean, we've done that historically. Quebec gets a larger share of the CBC budget. It gets a larger share of telefilm. It gets a larger share of all the different programs for their cultural industry on a per capita basis versus the rest of the country. Why are they going to this next step? It just, it baffles me, the connection between maybe the actual political problem they're trying to solve versus the legislative solution that they've created. Yeah, I, I think Sean is right that it's anachronistic. It is sort of an old idea. And I would probably say, you know, politics is number one here, um, especially because it has created controversy in the rest of Canada that's probably not worth the trouble for the government. Um, so that usually is a sign that there's something going on in Quebec that they're trying to deal with. And <laughs> the second thing I think, though, is that fundamentally in this government is this suspiciousness of any technology that allows, for example, J.J. McCullough to say whatever he wants. The idea that he's just out there you know, spouting off, I think is unsettling to them. We've seen this with Twitter and other online platforms. They don't like the idea of speech being just completely untethered. Um, so I think that's sort of a temperamental mindset that when you walk into, you know, the room to make legislation like this, you're open to those ideas where, you know, if Sean and I were to, I have found as a journalist, you know, I tend to be more of a free speech person than a lot of these people. And I've been surprised. I think I've said this before on the podcast that people I know who would classically have, you know, been free speech people are becoming less so. And I think that is sort of just 
the mindset that we've created, the convoy contributes to this, you know, all the sort of talk about the Twitter files, that kind of stuff. There is just an idea that this just can't go on like this. People are having too much fun. So I, I think that's definitely part of it. We, we should set up a system whereby only members of the Trudeau Foundation get to decide what is Canadian content or not <laughs> and what gets to appear on the Canadian, not just airwaves anymore, but now the, the Canadian internet. I, I'm sure David Johnson's got a bit of free time on his hands. <laughs> Ouch, I love it. Um, let's shift uh, here to what's happening with Meta and seeming indications out of Google that they are going to um, bulk at the other regulatory and legislative agenda of the government, which is to get the big tech platforms to pay for uh, news, in effect, to extend a direct subsidy to news organizations on the basis of sharing news content on Meta and on uh, Google. Um, Sean, what's going on here, and what do you think the implications are? Because in our conversations off air, you think that this could be a real, in a sense, policy uh, debacle where you get, in a sense, the worst of both worlds. You have uh, a winnowing of news sources from consumers, because I think there's some scary statistics, like half of all Canadians get their news through some combination of, of Google or Meta. And, or a weird Orwellian world where upwards of 50% of the payroll costs of newsrooms across Canada would be funded by big government through the existing subsidies that have been created and programs and big tech, which just strikes me as not a particularly healthy place for journalism in a democracy to end up. Yeah. In a nutshell here, the government is trying to solve a problem with a pretty peculiar solution. The, the problem being that legacy media is um, collapsing um, and the government is subsidizing it directly, but it doesn't have sufficient resources or, or the political will to subsidize it fully. So they've looked towards the large tech platforms and said, you have money, they need money. We're going to mandate that you give them money. Uh, I mean, it's not that much more complicated. And I would just make two points. First of all, the, the the policy rationale is is basically non-existent because it misreads the the value relationship here the value relationship isn't the tech platforms drawing on the original news content of the of the media organizations it's the opposite and the proof of this is uh when uh in australia uh uh the uh, major uh, companies stop showing news um, in response to similar legislation, they saw the, the media organizations in Australia saw a significant drop in their traffic, which proves that these organizations aren't taking value away from uh, media organizations, they're providing value. The second point I would just make quick um, is as a um, an independent or, or startup media organization, I'm, uh, I'm ticked because this represents in a way um, the government trading off the interests of legacy media at the expense of organizations like ours, which are grateful for our ability to be able to access our audience and reach new readers using these tech platforms. And if the result of this legislation in the name of trying to protect the interests of legacy media means that uh, groups like The Hub also lose access to 
um, being able to partner with the tech firms. Um, it's going to have negative effects rippled throughout um, the, the media ecosystem. So, uh, you know, it's uh, really, again, an example of anachronistic bad legislation trying to protect the big guy at the expense of the innovators in, in, in the market that are trying to reckon with a, a new media environment. Yeah. And, there, you know, there could have been so many other ways to solve for this. I mean, maybe there is a, a problem where you do need to understand that the news, like other public good activities, building hospitals, um, the arts, um, you know, you do want a thriving system of news gathering and dissemination in a society. But I've always thought, you know, wouldn't the more fair and empowering solution to this problem be some kind of, um, you know, voucher, a cash transfer to individuals to pay for all these subscriptions that were, you know, that were uh, now in, inundated with and, and many of us, in a sense, choose uh, a range of media sources to to consume. And imagine if you had the ability to go out and say, okay, I want these media sources, I'm going to get a tax credit you know, when I file my income tax to subsidize um, my consumption of these Canadian sources, all kinds of, you know, things you'd have to work out in terms of how those Canadian sources are designated, uh, who gets this tax treatment or not. But it's just, this strikes me, Stuart, it's just a classic example of, again, we're always going for the top-down approach here. We're never thinking of a marketplace of consumers of ideas of culture of news and information which just strikes me as just such a more vibrant way to look at who we are and what we're about as a society in the 21st century you know powered by technology not hampered by it yeah I, the the infuriating thing about this bill is that the premise is totally false the idea that you know facebook is stealing content when people post links on there and it's so foolish because my first job at the Edmonton Journal was literally to post our own content onto Facebook. In the parlance of this bill, my job was to steal our own content onto <laughs> Facebook. Um, so I like I know, we all know we started from scratch. We built an audience from scratch, primarily on Facebook, using Facebook to let people know who we are. And then we've kind of built our own momentum from that. So, you know, we're pretty aware of how much this stuff matters to media organizations. Um, the thing, though, that I think is also true is that the entire business model is completely broken. We can't get around that. Um, it is really hard to pay for news content. And this is just the government trying to solve a wicked problem and coming up really, really short. And you can tell why they came up short because you look at who's lobbying them. The people who have the power and the money to lobby them are these big legacy broadcasters and print outlets. Um, and then you can put yourself in the shoes of, you know, Justin Trudeau or any of the ministers involved in this and say, well, if post media goes down, virtually every daily local newspaper goes down with it. So, you know, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, and Ottawa also, Montreal Gazette goes down. I don't think you'd want to be the prime minister who's standing there in that kind of a carnage. Um, so the it's a completely rational move, I think, to just keep these legacy operations in the sort of zombie mode while you're in power, but it's not going to solve anything. And most of the revenues at post media, not most, but a lot of these revenues are going towards debt payments because they put on piled on this huge amount of debt in the mid 2000s. And that's been dragging them down ever since. So that's what our tax dollars are going to pay is that um, it totally stifles innovation. And you can see in the bill that 
the prize that Facebook and Google get for innovating and creating better advertising is that they then have to send that revenue to the people they disrupted with their better products. So even in sort of a general sense, we're punishing innovation and we're punishing innovation among the smaller outlets that are trying to build a new thing. I want to give the last word in this uh, segment to Amal Adar Guzman, the 20-something producer of this podcast. And Amal, I'd just be curious uh, to know what people, your peer group, think about all this. Because, you know, I've grown up through the rise and demise of mainstream legacy media. You've grown up in a really different world where those mainstream incumbents were really never dominant in the way that they were for me. I'm curious, like, do your peers even care about this? Do they is this just like ancient Greece? Is it like the Battle of Carthage or something? They're like, come on, people, let's move on to the 21st century. I mean, honestly, if you were to talk to anyone in my peer group or like any of my friends or even talk to like anyone in my cohort, we're not that tuned into this legislation. Sorry to say. We don't really understand how it works. To be honest, throughout this entire conversation, I'm actually learned more from this conversation how this bill is actually set up now than I did ever before. So the fact that we're kind of like checked out and we don't really care, I think it doesn't really impact us because here's the thing. So we grew up with the CBC a little bit, a little bit of my time. So I was born in 96. I grew up watching CBC here and there just to watch like old school Canadian content. But with the rise of YouTube, we all just kind of switch on to YouTube, just watching YouTubers, watching whatever we want. Doesn't matter where the content's, cre- where the content's coming from. It can be a content creator from the States. It can be a content creator here in Canada, or it can be a content creator in India. So we kind of just watched whatever we wanted. I mean, with this bill, from what I'm observing, it seems that they're winning. They're trying to win a losing battle. Like it's not going to work. It's going to stifle content creators. I mean, with what Stuart said about the whole Facebook thing, that's literally my job at the hub. That's one of my jobs at the hub. I'm in charge of the social media monitoring and also making sure that our stuff is out there. Because there's only so much that we can do to really promote our stuff. So we rely on Facebook. So with, from what I'm seeing, it looks like it's going to hamper content creation rather than help it. And the one of the big issues is like throughout the years with Canadian content creators, I don't think this bill is going to actually help Canadian content creators because it actually gets more, it's much more stifled. Historically, if, if you really want to make it big as a Canadian content creator, you don't stay in Canada, you go to the States. The reason why you go to the States is there's less restrictions and regulations about what kind of content you want to put out there. Now, is it kind of like the weird wild west out there in the States sometimes? And it's a lot of competition. Sometimes you make it or you break it. And then sometimes you lose. Yeah, it's insane, especially especially with like a lot of content creators going to like places like L.A., going down like other places, even New York. But they're willing to take that chance because once you make it big, you really make it big. And unfortunately, that's not the situation here in Canada. And I just feel like this legislation is not going to actually help Canadian contributors make it big here in Canada. It's actually going to limit them even more. That's a good point. There could be an exodus of talent out of a kind of Cuba, North Korea style regime of internet regulation (laughs) back to the free world. I mean, it's really, Sean, in some ways, it's that bizarre. Like there are very few countries in the world that regulate the internet to the extent that Canada is now considering. And all those countries are pretty horrible authoritarian regimes. I, it's a bizarre moment. And I would just say, you know, what great insight from a mall that really connects the dots between our two conversations. I guess at a fundamental level, is Canada does Canada aspire to be a, a bottom-up meritocracy where people uh, ultimately 
succeed or fail based on their own effort and creativity and and you know hard work or uh are we going to continue to be uh, a country that is um constrained by uh, a kind of uh, elite um that uh has the protection and the mandates from government in order to keep their kind of entrenched position, whether it's in the world of broadcasting and culture, uh, whether it's in the world of special rapporteurs. Uh, you know, I think Amal, um, what, not only is she a 20 something, she's someone who has an Iraqi father and a Nicaraguan mother. She is the future of Canada. And we need to have a kind of policy framework and a culture um, that lets people like her um, um, climb um, to the, the the kind of leadership of this country. Here, here, a great note to end on. Let's start a rebellion against the coupon clippers, those that want to organize our society, our culture around handing out coupons to all of us, and we're supposed to be, you know, happy and grateful as a result. Forget it. That's not the country I want. Okay, guys, uh, great show. Um, we. Uh, God, I had multiple rants this week. It was just a, a bonanza of ranting. I'm just, I feel so satiated. I want to thank you all. Thanks them all for coming on the program. And we'll do this all again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.